Welcome to Boomeranging, from expat to repat, a podcast that explores the question, what could be so hard about returning home after years living overseas? I'm your host, Margot Anderson, and in each episode, I will sit down with a former Aussie expat to discuss how they survived repatriation and reverse culture shock, how they navigated the logistics of careers, friends, and family to successfully find their new place at home, and all without losing their global spirit. If you have just returned home, are thinking about it, or just love a good yarn told by professional globetrotters, then I have no doubt you'll enjoy meeting this diverse group of Australians. Claire Pales was only six weeks into a new job back in Australia when she knew that her next career move would be her own business. Claire had returned from Hong Kong where she had continued her cybersecurity career, gaining a regional and global vision for where organisations would see cybersecurity in the future. Yet arriving home, she was met with local market rejection. Her time overseas was considered out of the market, her Asian experience wasn't valued, and cybersecurity was still being positioned by many as a special project of the IT department. So when Claire ended up in a role that also didn't meet her personal values, she was inspired to take the profession into her own hands and create her business advising and hiring the right cybersecurity specialists. Since going out on her own, she has also started the Security Collective podcast, authored two books, and most recently co-founded a second business, The Secure Board, offering advisory services to boards and executives to successfully manage their cyber risk. I'm keen to know the role Claire's expat experience played in giving her the experience and the confidence to shake up the cybersecurity industry in Australia when she got home, how it prepared her and what she would advise other fellow expats who are thinking about setting up their own business upon their return. So welcome, Claire. Thanks, Margot. It's nice to be on the other side of the microphone and not be the host and be the guest this time. Thank you. So where are we chatting with you today? So I am in Geelong in south of Australia, I suppose, right down near the uh, Bellarine Peninsula. Yeah, beautiful. Before we delve into your international story, I'm quite keen to hear about what life looked like and your career pre-Hong Kong because you had quite a big life and quite a big career before you embarked upon your overseas journey. Can you share some of the details there with us? Sure. So I I guess I'm from Geelong originally and, you know, we live back there now, but um, spent the first 20 years of my life down here in Geelong and then moved to Melbourne worked for Telstra for the first 11 years of my corporate career and I worked there while I studied police studies at uni and I also did a postgraduate in electronic crime and most of my years at Telstra were in corporate security dealing with law enforcement and um, phone interceptions and uh, helping uh, criminals uh, or not helping criminals start that again (laughs) (laughs) helping the prosecution in court um, with telecommunications records. And I loved that job. I I loved being a witness um, on behalf of Telstra. And so I did that for quite a few years. And then I moved into fraud from there and uh, did some work in um, Telstra around trust and safety. And then I left there after 11 years um, to have my second child. And while I was uh, on maternity leave with my second child, I got a phone call one day from a friend who was living in Hong Kong. And she said, hey, I work for Telstra in Hong Kong and I met this person who is looking for a cybersecurity leader and I know you're in security, so you should think (laughs) about, you know, moving up here. And so I'd had a pretty quiet life, I guess, leading up to that. You know, I worked for a big, very recognisable Australian brand. 
I'd had the opportunity to do a number of jobs at Telstra across the 11 years, met some amazing people um, and had two little kids. And so that sort of pre-Hong Kong life was, I guess, pretty stock standard for um, for someone, you know, out of uni and, and into the workforce. Mm. It was a busy life though. I mean, you know, you're obviously, um, you know, juggling both career and home, growing family. Um, I'm interested, was overseas always something that you thought, oh, that could be a possibility or was that really a call out of the blue when your friend rang you? Um, Living overseas was something I always wanted to do, but I actually thought that I was going to end up in the UK. I, I guess a lot of Australians do that. And my sister had gone and done a couple of years in the UK. And so for me, it was about working hard, finishing my degree off campus. And then once I'd finished that, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, maybe I'll start to look at opportunities in the UK. And then I got married and then I had a baby. And it wasn't that I'd put living overseas aside. It was more, I think, that my there was so much going on that I, I really hadn't thought through what was going to happen next. And, you know, when I went off on mat leave with with my second son, it didn't really occur to me that I wasn't going to go back to Telstra. Um, but, of course, that's, that's then what happened. And so you weren't actively seeking an international opportunity, I guess, but there was something about this one that piqued your interest. And so I guess I'm interested to know what that was. Yeah, so I hadn't actually worked in cybersecurity before. I'd, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'd worked in corporate security and I'd worked in fraud, and I had the, I guess, academic um, curiosity and qualifications around compliance and really helping organisations to, I guess, do the right thing. And so when I got the phone call about this role, it really felt like an enormous step up for me. You know, to go mm. from you know a small town <laughs> person who'd gone to Deakin Uni and then you know got this opportunity to go to Hong Kong and be um, the head of cybersecurity for a utility looking after operations in four different countries, that felt like a really huge step from you know running a fraud team in a, in a small section of Telstra. So mm. it was an enormous change for me, but something that you know my husband and I talked about and thought, well, you know these opportunities don't come along every day, so let's see where this goes, I suppose. And I actually went over there as a local hire. I didn't go as an expat. So most expats get this sort of two or three year cycle where at the end of that time, everybody renegotiates and you decide whether or not you're going to stay. We didn't really have that. So I went over there and I was employed locally in Hong Kong. And then it was just, you know, my, my work life ahead of me. There was no real structure to the, the expat contract, I suppose, or the way that's structured. So how were those, I suppose, initial few months, initial year? Because, you know, with the absence of a big package, I mean, I'm sure there was, you know, support around you, but it's a massive move and one with a family as well. Yeah, I would say a lot of people said to me the first six months will be the most challenging. And for us, it was probably really the first nine months. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we got over there and we knew a couple of people and we've settled in a very likely expat area. We lived in Happy Valley. And obviously my friend that had given me the call and said, you know, there's a job opportunity if you're interested. Um, uh, we knew her and we knew a couple of others. But the, from a network perspective, it was a very challenging thing to bring together. And because I was the one working and my husband was the stay-at-home parent, that brings a whole new level of complexity to um, networking for him as well. And so there was a lot of structure for Hong Kong mums and there was Facebook pages and all of that sort of thing. But for Hong Kong dads, 
it was a totally yeah. different existence. And so it probably took us a good seven to nine months to really get going and find a flat and, you know, fly, fly our dog over from Australia and, and get settled. And so, um, but after that, it sort of really started to take off and, um, you know, we made a lot of friends and we got structure and that and Hong Kong just became our home. Yeah. And what did you love about life in Hong Kong? I mean, there are so many expats there. It's clearly a popular destination. Um, what did it offer you as a family? Well, oddly, uh, possibly not the answer normal people give you, but um, for us, we had visitors all the time. We, you know, yeah. it was not hard. To, you never got homesick <laughs> because every month we would have people come up because it's such a hub and it's an exciting place to visit. And so for us, it was really about um, our family, this constant sort of churn of family members coming to visit us. But also living in Hong Kong, we were central to other parts of the world, you know, and I was able to travel with work and went into some really interesting places in China. I went to the US, which I hadn't been before, to the UK. Um, I ran a half marathon in Angkor, around Angkor Wat. So I was able to go to Amazing. Cambodia and just things like that that I probably you know, if I had have still been living in Melbourne, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do. Um, the food in Hong Kong is amazing. The lifestyle is kind of 24-7. It's pretty intense. Um, but there was a, a lot there to do, you know, and with family and friends coming over all the time, there was kind of never a dull moment. Yeah. So after um, an incredibly rewarding four years in Hong Kong, you make the decision to return home. What prompted that? Uh, a couple of things. <laughs> Um, not great things, but um, one was that my mum was incredibly ill and mm. that I kind of felt like it was only an overnight trip, a nine-hour flight home, but it was a long way away and she'd been sick for a while, but um, her cancer had returned and I really felt like I was a long way away from her. And also, you know, from a personal perspective, my husband and I had separated and he had come back to Australia. And so while my career was sort of um, flying and great things were happening in Hong Kong, my personal life was really kind of calling me back to Australia. And I'm really glad I did, you know, coming home with the two boys and um, settling back in Australia, you know, and I'm sure we're going to talk about what happened next. But while that was very challenging, it, it was the right time and, and the best thing that I could have done. Yeah. How old were your boys when you, when you returned? Uh, they were four and six. And so they they sort of recalibrated into life in Australia fairly easily and quickly? Yeah, I mean, they're pretty resilient. Kids in general, I think, are pretty resilient. And we returned to our old family home. So we went back to Melbourne where we'd kept the house from before. So we we had a bit of a network there and my youngest son was about to go into prep. So it was kind of a like a natural time to come back and sort of insert them into to schooling there and... Um, so while they were young, they were like quite sort of, they took it in their stride, I suppose. And coming from a place where, you know, the weather is quite intense in Hong Kong, there's not much, um, there's a lot of jungle and, and greenery, but not a lot of sort of places to run around. To come back to Australia where there's footy ovals and space expanse, you know, for two boys, it was pretty amazing um, eye-opener for them, yeah. So as we heard in your intro, um, your professional turn was not quite straightforward. Yeah. In your field of cybersecurity, why do you think the local market wasn't interested in your experience? I, I think that, I think a couple of things. I found that most people I speak to who are expats or repats had exactly the same experience that I did. So I don't think cybersecurity is yep. alone in the experience that I had. 
you know, I hear accountants and lawyers and comms people and all sorts of people who return from overseas and they're met with the same resistance. So I don't think being in cyber or my experience particularly was the issue. I think what I found was that the recruiters didn't really know what to do with me. They couldn't check up on my experience because mm. I've been out of the market for five years and really to them what I'd experienced and delivered in Asia was so different to what was going on here in Australia. Plus I had very kind of niche experience from a utility and I, I, the ones I spoke to said, well, if you're not technical and you don't have a computer science degree, we don't really know what to do with you. And that felt odd to me because when I went to Hong Kong, they'd taken such a chance on a fraud leader and put me in cyber and I'd had this great team and a great strategy and we'd been able to deliver. And then coming back here, I thought, this seems really odd. And yeah, fortunately for me, you know, I had um, some network that I'd maintained and, and some people that I'd met while I was in Hong Kong who, who lived here. And so I started to tap into that network. So, but coming back, I was out of work. I started looking for work in the January when I knew I was leaving Hong Kong and I didn't land a job until June. So, you know, it, was, it really was a six-month process and nine weeks back in Australia without work um, when I initially got back, yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that's one of the big challenges is just underestimating the time that it takes to navigate the market here because it is um, highly networked. You do need to go through multiple channels, I guess, to explore those networks and opportunities. Um, you know, we hear constantly about the hidden job market um, and so you need that support of, of your network to help you navigate that. Definitely. And what year was it that you came back? I came back in the middle of 2015. 2015, yeah, because, I mean, cybersecurity is something we're hearing almost daily in the news now. Um, you know, it wasn't really that long ago, but I'm, I wonder whether or not it was still a little bit mystical to many people as to what it all meant. You know, I'm not sure how you saw the, the sophistication of the market here comparatively to where you'd been and the understanding of the market. What I found was that the banks had this kind of covered in terms of you know, everybody remembers the Falcon and the, you know, credit card fraud and yeah. that sort of thing. And so from a bank's perspective, they'd been through a regulatory change that required them to focus more on IT security. And so for them, it wasn't a new thing. But what I was finding in other organisations was that they, like the one that I joined, the person I took over from, he'd only been there for a year. And prior to that, they hadn't had a function around cyber. So yeah. it was quite new. And my skills and experience were quite new because a lot of organisations were still had very tactical, technical professionals in that space. They, they hadn't quite moved to the head of or the CISO as we have now. And, you know, a lot of businesses were back at the IT security manager and I didn't have the skills for that, you know, and, and so I, I understand that. But some of, some of the bigger organisations had started to embrace, you know, bigger security teams and a bigger focus and those that had any kind of global reach had done so as well. But, yeah, the sort of mid-tier, they hadn't really started to explore it at a leadership level and I came in as a leader who didn't have that technical expertise and I needed to surround myself with a, a team that complemented me, yeah. Yeah. Was um, setting up a business on your mind before you left Hong Kong or was it the culmination of a number of factors that took place once you were back here? So I've always wanted to work for myself It's um, and I talk to my clients about this sometimes about, you know, what's your deathbed career uh, aspiration? You know, if you if you were to die soon, then, you know, lying on your deathbed, 
what would be that one thing that you think, you know, thank God I worked for that company or thank God I did that role or, you know, I think everybody should know what that thing is so they've got that achievement in their, their career. And working for myself was always something that I wanted to do. But certainly returning from Hong Kong with two little boys, I, I didn't, at the time, didn't think that that was, would eventuate very soon. I figured I'd have to come back here and really bed back down into the Australian market and sort of re-establish myself, I suppose. But that initial re-entry where I had so much challenge with recruiters, it really sparked something in me where I thought, well, these recruiters don't know what to do with my skills and experience, but I know what to do with my skills and experience and I know the types of organisations that would benefit. And so when I was working in a, in a role that I didn't really enjoy and that uh, I didn't have a value alignment with the company, I wanted to get out and for me, starting my own business seemed like the right next move because then I would be working in a company that did align with my values because it would be mine. <laughs> so, yeah. so there'd be something wrong if it wasn't if you didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, so it was really, you know, they say the obstacle is the way. For me, that getting over that um, hurdle of getting back into Australia and getting a job and having that that resistance with recruiters has built me. A model and a framework and a business model that you know I've worked in them for the last five and a half years quite successfully and so you know yeah. I've got them to thank for their sort of you know closed doors that, that I am where I am now. Yeah so can you tell us a little bit about the Security Collective and what it is that you do? Yeah so um, back in 2016 when I decided to start the business I was going to be a recruiter and mm. I loved building teams and I'd had some success in that and so what I thought was that I would go into organisations that had had these security leadership roles empty for a long time and I'd try to help them work out why they couldn't hire and were they looking for this you know, unicorn that could do everything and I'd help them with that recruitment process, assess where they'd been, look at the candidates and try to help them understand who might be a right fit. But you would do it from within? You would step inside, is that what you mean? Well, that wasn't the original plan. So the original plan was to be a recruiter and then my first mm. client said to me, well, this job's been empty for for nine or so months. Could you work for us while while you continue to do this hiring? Ah. And I thought, what a brilliant idea! <laughs> so, so one way I, to get to know the company. That's right. So I completely immersed myself in the job, you know. And I, I said, look, I'll give you three days a week. I've got two little kids. If I can do it, you know, part time, and just really start to build momentum in the business around cyber and um, help me to understand. So that hand on heart, I can go to candidates and say, okay, this is the job. This is what you're mm. going to walk into. This is what the boss is like, the culture's like, and really be able to, to speak to candidates. And so they could say, that sounds like a headache, no thanks, or that really sounds like my cup of tea. And it worked. And for the last five and a half years, everyone I've placed except for that very first person is still in their jobs. And, mm. you know, for me, that shows me that that model works. And I, I really appreciate it when candidates say to me, wow, you know, now you've told me all of that, actually that's not the job for me because so many of them could have been through the recruitment process and even taken the job only to find that, you know, it wasn't really what they expected and I'm sure people find that all the time. So, yeah, yeah. so that was the evolution of my business model that originally I was trying to combat this recruitment issue but actually the, the, the pain point was the CIOs who were up at midnight writing cyber board papers, they were the ones that needed the help. The recruitment was the bonus. It was take this off my hands and, and help me because the recruitment is great, but right now, you know, these are my pain points. 
So are you seeing, I'll go over that five and a half years, have you seen any evidence to suggest that Australian businesses are now more open to international experience? Uh, no. <laughs> right. I am. Like I try and read every CV you know, yeah. page by page and, and really take in where people have been. Mm. And, and I can see international experience in people because they take a different approach to things or they might be able to lend uh, in an interview, they might be able to lend stories or experience that maybe normally we wouldn't hear of and so you know certainly as as one of them (laughs) I try to take on the idea that someone from overseas would be a great hire but I I also see and I mean COVID has made it so hard because we can't accept people from overseas but even before that there was a challenge I think with um, interviewing people from overseas understanding if they were the right fit because you're taking a really big gamble for those that aren't yet in the country. And that was the other thing that for people who were on the ground here, employers were more open. But if you were still in the other country and they were sort of taking a gamble on bringing you out here almost. Even for Australians who were sitting internationally? Yeah, I think those that were were repatriating or trying to get home, organisations I found some of them a little bit wary of being that that conduit for them. Other successes I've had, though, where I've placed people in Australian companies with overseas satellite offices has been amazing because they might be in another country, the UK, the US, they join the business, they work from the overseas office with a view to repatriating with the same business, totally different experience. And I've had some success in my business doing that. And I really would encourage people to look at that as an avenue if they're trying to get home, but also just maintaining your network here while you're gone because you never know when you're going to want to come home. Some people say, well, I live overseas now, this is my home, I'm never coming back. But COVID has taught us how many people have wanted to come back in that time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's about um, not only maintaining your networks, I mean, which, I mean, knowledge comes through your networks, but how are we educating ourselves on what is actually happening in the market so that we are completely up to date and understanding the nuances of what's happening here? Because I think one of the greatest challenges people talk to me about is, is like, Margot, I feel like I'm out of sight, out of mind. And I'm like, well, to a large extent, you are. Yeah. Um, so, yes, you need your networks and your networks can help you build that knowledge, but you need to be engaging with these organisations or industry groups, et cetera, who can help you build your relevance, if you like. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, for those returning expats with cybersecurity sector experience, is there anything specific that you would share in terms of advice about what they should be looking for or considering you know, in relocating home or tapping into the market here? Yeah, and, and I, I'm talking constantly to people that live in other countries about um, about coming to Australia, whether they're Australians or not. And for me, it's not necessarily about, again, not necessarily about cyber, but it's more about making the decision about what your priority is. So is your priority to get to Australia? And if that's the case, it may be that you might take a role that isn't your ideal job, but it gets you to Oz, you know, and, mm. and some of my um, coaching clients will say, well, that's the priority. I, I want to be back in Australia. And so they might look at jobs that are with big four consulting companies and it might be an 80 hour week, but you're geographically where you want to be. So if that's your priority, that's one way of looking at it. But others who have the priority of saying, well, I want to work for a not-for-profit or I want to work for a startup or I want to work for the government or 
And so their priority becomes that very specific workplace or very specific type of experience that they want to have. And so therefore, it's not about how quickly you can get to Australia, but it's about coming when that right opportunity is there as well. Yeah. And so, I mean, at the moment in Australia, in fact, globally, we're crying out for really great cybersecurity expertise. So it's a it's a market for people who have those skills. And, you know, when the borders open up and people can come in, then there's lots of opportunity. But those people still have to work out what's the right company, what's the right location, you know, and and knowing that the values alignment is there so that when they get there, they stay because retention in our industry is is really poor, attrition. We, we see a lot of people move on partly because they get into roles and it's not what they thought it was going to be. And so working out for people who are living overseas or planning to come back or have just come back, what's your number one priority because that location or that business or that experience is should be what drives you, not necessarily trying to have it all because if you have it if you're trying to have it all there's a good chance it will take a long long time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and it's that real clarity around why are you coming home? And invariably when I it's the number one question I ask straight off the bat and 9 times out of 10 I hear uh you know kids are hurting sorry um hitting a certain age of school, you know, aging parents, a partner that doesn't want to be overseas anymore. So it's life drivers that are bringing you back home doesn't mean that our career isn't important, but it's like that's our anchor is actually life first. And so sometimes that's a really hard thing to reconcile when your experience is not being bought at all. Yeah. <laughs> so again, that comes back to then, okay, clarity around what I can do, want to do and where I can fit, you know, where, where I can tap into. So yeah, it's great advice. Um, I'm interested in just staying on the theme of your business for the moment. Did your experience as an expat influence, I guess, the confidence you had in starting a business? You mentioned that you'd always wanted to. I'm wondering like if that experience of starting again somewhere new in a country or does that does that underpin some level of confidence in starting something yourself? Yeah, I definitely found that living overseas instills in you this kind of not necessarily a sense of adventure because I'm pretty risk averse sort of person. But um <laughs> that's probably why I work in cyber. But uh, um it's more that you become a very good problem solver and you become quite resourceful, I think, because you land in a place where English might not be the first language, you might not know many people and you kind of have to find your way around and, you know, not just in the geographical sense of it but just generally in the society there. And so for me going over there um, was such a new experience for me but it taught me how to be resourceful and how to plan for things and how to put people around me to support me um, but also financially when I went to Hong Kong I had a small nest egg of money so I knew if anything ever went wrong I could buy some plane tickets and we could go back to Australia and so I did exactly the same thing when I started the business I had a small nest egg of money that I knew would last me a period of time and then so no matter what happened if I got no clients or if my business model didn't work I could still feed the family and I didn't have that additional pressure Mm. so that certainly that experience of going over there and just finding my feet and, you know, finding my way really was really good exposure for someone starting your own business where once again it's like a foreign country, you know. There's yeah. new rules and regulations and you don't really know what you're doing and when you start a business it, it is a different language to speak because you, you know, I stepped out of being an in-house person and for all intents and purposes I became a vendor 
And I'd spent my whole life, you know, at arm's length from IT vendors because unless I needed their products, then I didn't want to talk to them. No, <laughs> and all of a sudden no, I was on the other side saying, <laughs> you want to talk to me about this amazing product I'm trying to sell? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I definitely think the, being an expat overseas and learning a new way of living meant that I came back here and I had the confidence to try something new and the confidence that if it was going to fail, I had a net underneath me. Yeah. And I do think having that financial net is critical because otherwise it clouds all your ability to think creatively or, you know, to really investigate things with the time they might need. It just gives you that space to think. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I mean, I think that's great advice. In terms of other advice, you would give expats who are wanting to start a business that leverages their international experience. Is there anything else particularly that you would um, you would advise? I would definitely say that in an interview process or in the process of trying to get a new job or even setting up your own business, working out how your overseas experience can bring value to your new workplace or your clients or whatever the case is, leveraging it and talking about it but in a way that makes the, the person on the other end think, wow, well, you're, you're the perfect choice, you know, because you've, you've got this experience and you're able to leverage it and you can bring that forward. And, you know, I find now, having worked in a utility in another country, when I have utility clients, I understand their language and I know what they're talking about. And that brings, you know, another dimension to what I'm able to offer. So anybody coming back from overseas, embrace your overseas experience. Yeah. But think about how do the stories from overseas apply to what an Australian market might want or need to hear? Yeah, perfect advice. We often talk about how to localise your global story. Yeah, you said it better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think too, you know, people don't naturally join the dots here. So you have to help people join those dots. Um, And I think firstly, obviously, we need to understand the market here in order to do that. But so many people will say to me, Margot, do I really have to disregard my overseas experience? I'm like, no, not at all. Never do that. But learn how to localize it. Learn how to tell it with real relevance to the to the audience here. Yeah. Um, yeah, no great advice. Now, Claire, we like to finish all of our podcasts with five quick questions. So I would love to pose those to you today. So living overseas opened my eyes to? The kindness of strangers. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, The number one skill I use today in my business is? Definitely building rapport, you know, starting those relationships as soon as you meet somebody. The best thing I have discovered since arriving home is? It's the best thing and the worst thing. It's that (laughs) nothing ever changes. Nothing had changed. I was gone for three and a half years. Nothing changed back here. And that's a good thing in some ways because it feels like home. Yeah. But a bad thing as well. (laughs) Yeah. It's that real quandary, isn't it? Um, Yes. The first thing I would encourage a new repat to do is? Um, I'd actually encourage them before they become a repat to think when they leave or while they're overseas, keep your network like we spoke about earlier. Yeah. Definitely keep a network back here in Australia. Yeah, lovely. And I think the important thing there is know where your network moves to, you know, because they'll move too. So, yeah. Um, Final question, a word, song or quote that best describes my time overseas is? I would say Changes by David Bowie. Great. Excellent. That's great. Oh, thanks, Claire. I've loved your story and um, I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Margot. I've really enjoyed chatting. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please leave us a review, share it with your friends and family, and subscribe for future episodes. For more information on our guests, please head to our website, insyncnetworkgroup.com, where you can check out the show notes and also find more information about our fabulous community and membership offerings.